Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. If you're a new listener, welcome to the Barbell Medicine Podcast series. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. Really appreciate you joining us. This week is episode 170. This is part one of the recent in-person seminar for the pain and rehab team. Doctors Derek Miles and Michael Ray did a question and answer session on day two, and this is part one of that Q&A. We've got some really interesting questions on this particular podcast. We talk about what to do when activity modification doesn't work, using other tools besides RPE or rating of perceived exertion uh, for loading, uh, steroid injections for pain, and even fried chicken. So all of that and more on this week's podcast. We'll get into that in just a second. But first up, a few announcements. First off, if you want to join our pain and rehab team for a live in-person event, they have another seminar scheduled for this year. It is in May. It's in Greenville, North Carolina. More information about how to sign up, how to get there, etc., is in the description below. So check that out. The last seminar was sold out in Portland and sold out relatively quickly. So uh, we would, you know, advise you if you're interested in doing this, sign up soon. Uh, also, tomorrow is March 17th. I believe that's how this thing works. Yep. When this goes up, it'll be March. Uh, 16th. So tomorrow is March 17th. That's St. Patty's Day, St. Patrick's Day. And we're running a sale. All of our supplements on the website are 20% off. Use the code BBMPATS. That's B-B-M-P-A-T-S for 20% off all supplements. That's tomorrow only, March 17th. And then finally, all of our Barbell Medicine t-shirts, sweaters, stocking caps, all the apparel is back in stock and shipping now. If you're interested in getting some BBM swag, head over to the website and get that. It really helps support the brand so we can do cool stuff like bring you podcasts and YouTube videos and other sort of free content. We've got to support the brand somehow, and we appreciate your support. Now, with all that in mind, let's head into this week's podcast, part one of the Q&A from Portland, Oregon. All right. Well, thank you guys for attending our Barbell Medicine Pain and Rehab Seminar. It's our fifth year doing this. I'm not even sure. Are we on 20 now? I have no idea. It's getting up there. Um, so we appreciate you guys coming out. It's been a great weekend meeting all of you and having fun discussions about topics we're passionate about. And uh, now we're going to answer some questions that you guys have sent us throughout the weekend. Hannah is going to be kind enough to read our questions to us. All right. So if pain is all about the lived experience and pain is only defined by the patient, what is my response after the patient gives an explanation that provo- promotes avoiding meaningful activities and movements and fear? We can say interesting and ask more questions, but then what? I mean, that's definitely <laughs> for you. 
<laughs> yeah, at some point we have to like try to get them to re-engage their life activities, however we can possibly do that. So that's, even when we were talking about say, Stefan's 2016 with mitigating the future development of low back pain, it's education, consultation, and exercise. It takes both of those. I've just shifted from saying specifically exercise to physical activity and movement to kind of change how we approach that, the discussion. But that's what we would have to do is try to get them to take that next step outside of just discussing their beliefs. It's also going to take them engaging the things that they're fearful of and apprehensive of. It's just like anything else um, in regards to like what I may be fearful of. Uh, public speaking would have been one of those things on the list in the past. But the only way you get better at public speaking is to publicly speak. And you have to kind of face your fears, so to speak. So getting them to see that as an obstacle that they can overcome, that is a challenge and not a complete blockade. That's how I would approach it. Yeah, I think it obviously is person dependent, but it's finding something you can relate to. Uh, a lot of times I will kind of go around the conversation to find some common ground and then start trying to revisit back into it. Because if you have whatever belief that might not be ideal, that's not gonna change on especially day one. So really the goal in some of his initial interactions is just to get the person to like you. I, I know that sounds overly simple, but really like one of my foundational goals of the first day of a consult is to get someone to laugh because it turns out it's really hard to hurt and laugh at the same time. So it's not necessarily that I'm trying for this like big existential conversation. It's just how corny of a joke can I feasibly tell to get you to giggle and go from there. I like when I giggle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when looking at pain management, how do you factor in hormone responses? For example, elevated cortisol, stress, etc. Even if manual therapy isn't helpful, do you consider massage therapy useful in pain management? It doesn't do me any good to confront all of them and having that conversation. When you're to the hormonal question, it doesn't. I, I'm pretty sure. I have never thought to myself, if I do this, I'm going to elevate their cortisol. In fact, I'm positive. I have never thought to myself. So you're not thinking about the diurnal variation of cortisol levels and appropriate no. utilization of manual therapy? No. And I think that's one of those, like, it's a green M&M thing. Like, if you check enough variables, something's going to change. And it's just fun to say whatever the one is changed. I saw somebody had a study out this week where they were saying that exercise is effective and in the methods section it was like 19 variables and two ended up being statistically significant. So well, they course, got positives. That's yeah, all that matters. It's published that bad boy. Yeah. But I don't think about I don't think about the hormonal side of it at all. It's interesting because it, it almost becomes like this very esoteric conversation when you start throwing around hormonal changes as if we have meaningful influence over that that's repeatable and able to be replicated and a whole host of issues. Uh, often when I hear stuff like that, it makes me concerned that we're just kind of entertaining ourselves and the people we're trying to help with these fancy narratives. Um, if someone wanted to engage in massage therapy or something like that, I think it's fine. Uh, when I usually think about this, I don't want to waste my time and money. That's just me. Um, I can make more money, I can't make more time. So are we having large return on investment from going to see a massage therapist? That's certainly debatable. But if you have the expendable income and the free time to go do it, and you're not buying into, like Derek said, some ridiculous narratives under the guise that you need massage therapy, 
then I'm fine with it. I'm often more concerned, are you checking more meaningful boxes like quantity and quality sleep, adequate dosage of activity, adequate dietary intake for your body composition and physical activity goals, adequate stress management, which I could see an argument for massage fitting in there as a coping tool, uh, social network and support, stuff like that, that are far more meaningful first before worrying about that. The other thing that I would just caveat on that is if um, ideally, that doesn't mean you're paying a clinician to use like a Theragun on you. Just go buy the Theragun and use it on it yourself. There's no fancy technique that you need to pay someone to do to you. Uh, so that, that would be my only caveat. Does the pain tolerance rule of thumb stay the same regardless of mechanism of injury or pathology? What is the pain tolerance rule of thumb? That's a good question. I don't know. Unless it's, yeah, I think that's what they're referring to is like, uh, the recommendation to have them engage activity to tolerance. Ultimately, there's no generality there that can be done beyond the individual. Yeah, I certainly have athletes that, I mean, if someone comes in at a 7 out of 10, then by said rule of thumb, I'm not going to be able to do anything. anything. Yeah. So it's obviously there's some caveats to that. I mean... It, well, you know what it reminds me of are the, I think there were tendinopathy papers that came out that said like, well, if there are, you can do ex exercise with them if they're a four to six on the numerical pain rating scale, but if they got to a seven, it was full. And I was like, that makes no fucking sense to me because I need to be able to get them to start loading into activity again to tolerance. Uh, I think, I think it's okay if things hurt a little bit, and especially when you're dealing with a chronic pain population, it's you're going to have some of that. And it's, I guess, to switch it, it's the good old pain function dichotomy that comes out. And sometimes if I'm wanting to increase function, I have to accept that pain's probably gonna be a little bit higher. I, I think the problem is now, I, I worry sometimes our message gets misconstrued is, well, if it hurts, it's okay just to keep doing everything. And so we just dial everything up to 11 because of course symptoms don't equal changes. Yeah. But in the same token, I think we don't talk enough sometimes about the just because you feel good isn't a free pass to go do stupid things. Cause or max efforts even. Well, but not even max effort. If, if you look at the question for types of injuries, like most people feel pretty good after a muscle injury in about six days. That doesn't yep. mean it's time to go full send on your program. So there are constraints that you need to be aware of. And uh, sometimes I think the injuries where you feel good a little bit too quick are the more dangerous of the set. Yeah, because you're not aware of it, like any limiting factor. Yeah. As someone without a clinical education or background, how should I approach studies or research papers so that I can understand them and properly interpret the information presented? Read a lot, talk to a lot of people. <laughs> get on YouTube, start learning some basic statistics. And as much as it pains me to say it because I think it's a dark place, go to Twitter. Um, you can follow a lot of the academics live on Twitter and people will post a study. And if you want to learn methodology real fast, go to research paper threads because you will see people go back and forth insanely quickly. Um, I think... If, if I were to recommend some reading material, Phil Tetlock's Super Forecasters, great piece of prose. I don't think I've seen that. It's all on like probabilistic thinking. And uh, you've definitely seen it because that is our constant debate of 
what's the probability that this oh, is likely? Yeah, yeah. That's where, yeah, yeah, that's where that comes from. Well, I know it from, um, I think it's street epistemology uses it as well, where he asked them, like, how confident are you in that belief from zero to 100? Yeah. It, uh, I agree. It, it, it's just, it's easy for us to say, like, you should go read research, which we think that. Like, the way you get better at understanding and synthesizing research is to, to build your foundation of totality of evidence so when a new article comes out, it's not shifting your beliefs so quickly and so dramatically. So once you have a good handle on the totality of evidence, it's going to take a substantial amount of evidence to contradict you. But you don't know that until you see the total body, right? Otherwise, you're chasing down all these new beliefs you're getting from a single paper. So looking at systematic reviews and meta-analyses is a great place to start because they're going to have a totality approach. What is all the data about this specific topic? And then what is the current status of that? And let's say the last one was published in 2017. Well, what has been published since 2017? And was this a good systematic review and meta-analysis from a, quali a quality standpoint? So I think that's a great starting point, taking statistics, like not even as a class, but going to, like Derek said, to YouTube. You would be amazed, if you haven't checked, the things that you can find on YouTube. Like there are, there are, even a there are numerous academics, like at Stanford or Harvard or MIT, that film their classes and put them on YouTube, and it's completely free to you. Um, I fell into many uh, philosophical rabbit holes because I watched a philosophy person lecture online. Um, so I, I think that would probably be easy and tangible and free. I would almost compare it to like your pokey deck. Yeah. Like uh, learning to read research is like if you go into, are they called battles for Pokemon? I never played, but yeah, I believe yeah. so. So if you go into like a Pokemon battle and like all you have is a Charizard, you're and you're, you're going up against like a water Pokemon. You know more than me about this. I would assume that's a bad thing. But, you know, you, you want to have like an expansive deck. Yeah. Like if you just have one type or one card, like odd, odds are you're going to lose your Pokestop. Yeah. It, it's funny, too, because like we've talked about this. It's almost like a love language as well. Like your friends realize what your research interests are, and they start sending you things. And they're like, oh, I know you would enjoy this. And I'm like, you're a good friend. We do that all the time. I forward every shoulder article I find to him. That way I don't have to read it. <laughs> Speaking of research, what are your favorite journals and sources of information? You want to just say pain and you can be, be done. done with it. Yeah. Everything that has the word pain in yeah. it. <laughs> uh, I spend a lot more time in BJSM, uh, JOSPT, trying to think some of the other ones I end up hitting a lot. I, I don't, I guess some of it depends on like how you were trained to look for it. Like I am not the tech savvy person. If you guys are unaware of that, um, I would normally just start on PubMed and end up in this like weird rabbit hole four hours later with 35 tabs open and looking at some. And, but after a while, it, it is like you start noticing you're seeing the same journals over and over and over again. But there isn't one journal that I like check their index every month. I, I subscribe to some only because of my research interests. So I'm a subscriber to the Journal of Pain, which is the United States Association for the Study of Pain's official journal. I subscribe to the International Association for Study of Pain, which is the Pain Journal. Um, I subscribe to NSCA Strength and Conditioning Journal because I'm an NSCA member, uh, because I also teach those classes like Strength and Conditioning at the school. Um, but yeah, I don't, there's not, it's, it's interesting from like 
reading as a clinician and then reading as a researcher, because as a researcher, you start identifying journals that fit what you're trying to say and do. Uh, and my, the team and I have had this discussion before where we're like, yeah, that journal wouldn't be a good fit because they don't really publish, say, qualitative research. So we wouldn't really want to submit to them. Um, so it's kind of interesting and I'll think about it from that position. But I would try to subscribe to a wide variety of things, um, but obviously money's a limiting factor, right? So to subscribe to like ISP's journal, it's like $250 a year. So if you don't want to do that, then um, trying to find a friend who has access or other means or that most of us are aware of. let's just hypothetically say that there is a hub somewhere on the about internet. About science. About science, but it happens to be an acronym. Yes. Of, I don't know, for said hypothetical, the first three letters of science. And if yes. you went to this science hub, you may be able to procure things. Yes. Took the words right out of my mouth. When can we expect a randomized controlled trial comparing the perceived outcomes of traditional fried chicken versus tapioca fried chicken? This is a you question. <laughs> well, I need 16 pieces of each to properly power it. I don't know. It sounds like I have cooking with adhesions homework this week. <laughs> Which should be on your YouTube channel, Cooking with Adhesions. The journal, the journal of flavor profiles. I would subscribe. Is social interaction an underrated variable to monitor while an individual is going through the rehab process? Do you yes. want to say yes or do you want me to? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because we've had this conversation just literally this week where we both have said we prescribe social interaction as like our intervention. Where we're like, hey, I really need you to just go hang out with your friends. <laughs> like That is your homework for this week. I have one athlete, his Friday workout is go to happy hour. Yeah. And it really is. I, I think the garage gym phenomenon has cut both ways to where it is great that people have these setups, but really... Like part of the reason we go to the gym is for that social interaction. And now we don't have that. We're not sitting there talking to individuals. And all we see is the people throwing up their single on Instagram. And we forget that like most people in the gym aren't walking in going whatever anthropomorphic mode of your choosing every time <coughs> they're in there. Yeah, prefer gorilla. Yeah, starfish. Or rhino. Yeah. How do you approach the situation where you temporarily avoid an aggravating activity or position, modify accordingly, and then their symptoms are unchanged when you go back to reintroduce the movement or position a few weeks later? Should I continue modifying and try another variation at a later time? Some would argue that we can't modify forever. We're just not ready to do it yet. I mean, it's, uh, I think if you fail a math test and we go back and do remedial and we don't pass the math test again, it's not like we give up on math. It's just, I did. Uh, it's just obviously, it's <laughs> how you ended up in qualitative research. <laughs> it's the truth. <laughs> um, but I think a lot of times it is like, I see a lot of my job in many instances as being the person that's like, wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. Okay, now. Go. Yeah, and like so many of the athletes are like, I want to do it now, I want to do it now, I want to do it now. And you're like, well, okay, we can, but this isn't the best decision for us. What was the dichotomy you used to create? Our confronters and our avoiders? Avoiders, yeah. yeah. Do you want to explain that? Yeah, so, it, well, it wasn't me who created it. There's literature on this to where 
um, a dichotomy, which obviously is the spectrum, exists between confronters and avoiders. Confronters say, this hurts. If I do 10 more of it, it'll get better. Avoiders say, this hurts. I'm never going to do it again. Both of those, obviously, at their extremes are bad. But the approach is different. This is what I was saying earlier today about some exercise selection. Like, I, I enjoy single leg bridges strictly because of someone's a confronter and be like, well, this burns. You're having difficulty with this. Maybe we don't need to go YOLO on our snatch tomorrow. Whereas if someone, you know, is more on the avoider side, and they do 10 of them, I'm like, you didn't even think you could pick your butt up off the table. Look what we just did. So it's not necessarily the exercise, it's the frame associated with it. I agree that asymmetries are normal and healthy in many instances, but have a question regarding hip shifts while squatting post-ACL reconstruction. Are there certain cues or strategies that you like to use to work on improving these? Yeah, um, there's a lot. Uh, I will run sets a lot of times where my emphasis, and in, in actually it's, this breeds right into the last conversation, where our emphasis is adding weight, and then we'll do drop sets. and. Uh, from where I work in adolescence, everyone understands the cue. I want this squat to be Instagram worthy. And most people know how to dial that in. And I don't expect it to be perfect, but sitting there and like trying to force someone out of a hip shift, I, I think creates just different sets of problems. A lot of times you'll see them like rotate in their trunk and do all kinds of weird stuff. But like, once again, wait for it, wait for it. It's on the rehab side of knowing like, it does get better with time and especially as your quadriceps get stronger and we start getting a little bit further in the rehab process. But you know, if I start someone working these mechanics at four weeks and someone else starts them doing it at 10 weeks, I've had six weeks of just working the technique to like remedy this. I've got nothing to add to that. <laughs> Alright, assuming red flags have been ruled out, does imaging become warranted after a long trial of conservative care, which they define as three to four months, that has minimal or no effect on a patient's symptoms? Uh, it's a difficult question to give a blanket answer to because there's a lot of variables to consider. Right now all I know is persistent pain. But I can say it would take some level of change in symptomatology, typically worsening, and other presentation to give me cause for concern. So without that, just temporality, like, oh, it's lasting longer, that would not be enough to evoke me ordering imaging for someone. There's a host of papers on red flags and their prevalence. And I, I think it's, when you use the word funny, it's not right, but I mean it in the semi-sarcastic sense, that it's funny that red flags and imaging tends to fall in the like definition of porn. It's like none you know of yeah, none it. of the research yeah. really like supports what it is, but yeah. like yeah, you know it when you see it. And I think that's why the mix of like seasoned clinicians and new clinicians is so important because like new clinicians you get exposed to this stuff in didactic work whereas I just have enough reps to where I've seen really weird stuff over the years. So, it, like, I think it's cool when, with a new grad, you're like, what's your differential here? And they name something, and you're like, why would it be that? And occasionally they'll bust something I've never heard of. I'm like, well, time to go to PubMed. The case that comes to mind is I had someone I was working with remotely that had a prior history of cancer, and they had persistent hip pain that had been worsening to the point that they were limping over the past three months. That was 
time to go get some imaging. So, but that was new onset of symptoms that were progressing and worsening outside of just persistent hip pain where they were losing the ability to ambulate and the prior history of cancer. So that's, you know, one of the scenarios where you're like, I need to go get this image. Uh, for anything, the risk of avoiding imaging is worse in that scenario if I miss something. So that's kind of the thing that I would think of. That is a persistent pain case that warranted it. How do you recommend that we as practitioners and healthcare providers begin to reconcile an embedded approach to rehab pain and regular physical activity versus the innate underlying need for us to also make money? As I, the E word that you... Yeah, I don't think those are mutually exclusive. Uh, if anything, like we've, to me, demonstrated at Barbell Medicine since 2018 that you can make this a profitable model. It's funny because like uh, students and interns often ask me, you know, does it make sufficient amount of money? And I'm like, well, tell me what type of lifestyle you want to lead, which is different for everyone. I can't tell you if it's enough money. I know it's enough money for me and my family and the way I want to live, but that's a very individualistic question. Uh, I don't know. I, I actually probably would take a little bit of a different approach to answering this and play the I don't know card strictly because I think in a truly utopian world, we would be able to devote just as much effort to the underserved community as totally the agree. one that pays the bills. Plan to. And yeah, I, but making that work on an Excel expense sheet is a different problem unto itself. It is. So I, I don't think there is a good answer to that at this point, but that doesn't mean we stop looking for it. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, what he's getting at is uh, we know lower social economic status is linked to a lot of outcomes that aren't great. Um, and I don't think it's just us. I think collectively, a lot of professions struggle with how do we address that appropriately. Um, and you do see, unfortunately, social marginalization as it relates to pain scenarios, uh, even to the point of like, depending on the area of the country you live in and your social economic status, you get widely different health care for the same issue. And, th and that's a problem. How we fix that, uh, I don't know that we have an answer um, that's tangible at this time. Uh, do you guys have communication strategies to build trust and buy-in from patients who have been told conflicting medical advice from other rehab professionals and doctors? Don't lead with talking to them about their conflicting medical advice. Uh, I, I think, you know, I talk about cooking a lot with my patients because it's something that we all do and it's relatable, but if it's my job to, if they put it on me to start sorting things out, then I'm going to give my opinion. But a lot of times I'll also ask them like, how much do you really want to talk about this? Yep. Because I, I know, and, and I'm open a lot of times with patients about like, listen, this is a too many cooks in the kitchen phenomenon. And all I am is just one more opinion and unless I know there are some parameters that I hit for benchmarks to sway you, then it's just me adding my own thoughts on this. Yeah, I think it goes back to some of the stuff we were talking about with motivational interviewing, like asking for permission to share an alternative viewpoint. Um, I've also been in scenarios where I tell them that they should seek care elsewhere because it confirms a bias that they had and they're not ready to hear what I have to say. So there's really no point in me trying to like, you know, beat both of our heads on the wall and working on this. So I just tell them, you know, it sounds like that's the path you want to choose and I support that. 
And what kind of patient presentations are epidural steroid injections helpful? And then they specify low back, Oof. shoulder, and knee. Very few. Yeah. That would be my answer to that. It is a grossly overutilized intervention. There are a subset, and here's the thing. That's like saying, in what population is a back squat a necessary exercise? And the answer is there probably are a few, but it's much less than you think. Yeah. Uh, I, the evidence for epidurals for low back pain, because it's really why you should be doing that, um, f- f- really is shoddy at best. I think if you get an individual with a very high belief that an epidural is going to be the solution to it, they haven't had any resolution with conservative care. Um, it's more in the high acuity phase. That tends to be kind of the benchmark for people who respond to it. You know what's weird is, all I could think about is uh, my qualitative study. One of the things multiple people reported was persistent back pain that they attributed to an epidural. And I was like, what? Like I had literally, I'd never heard that as an explanation, but at least three to five people reported that out of 62. So I don't, I don't have much more than that to say that it's interesting that people would A, think that that's necessary to get out of pain for low back pain, but then B, there is a subset that appears to be attributing their low back pain to an epidural. So I, I would struggle to find the scenarios in which that's a, when I think about interventions, I think about what must we do to get the outcomes we're looking for, and I don't put that in a must-do category. How do we identify how much of a stimulus is enough in an objective way? Are there other key performance indicators besides RPE that you like to use? Reps in reserve, asking them how hard it is. I will occasionally go for the good old classic DOMS. Are you sore after this? I, I think uh, you know if I'm going to give one specific scenario, uh, a lot of times you've had somebody who after a knee surgery who's had some type of nerve block, you can throw whatever technique you feasibly can think of at them and fry them and it's not going to elicit DOMS. And that's actually one of the big litmuses I look for is when we can finally start like crossing that threshold again. Um, (laughs) I wait on the bar. How hard is it? RPE, RIR. I'm sure if I throw another R acronym in there, I can come up with it. Yeah. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I don't think just because we're saying subjective perception of difficulty of an activity is guiding load selection, that that then means we're not paying attention to load. Uh, I think that's kind of a false dichotomy that people try to pigeonhole us into. We still monitor objective metrics. We're still monitoring load on the bar, uh, speed of completing an activity, or how much work capacity do they have. We're just coupling that to subjective perception and recovery, and how are they doing and auto-regulating accordingly to help see long-term broad trends over time. So what I usually say is I'm not concerned about day-to-day variations or week-to-week or month-to-month. I'm concerned about year-to-year, five-year differences, 10-year differences. And the reason I'm doing that is I'm trying to get them to realize it's embracing the process, process mindset over outcome, because I want them training and being active for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years down the road. So I don't think those are mutually exclusive topics. 
How do you communicate with surgeons who may promote a fear of movement or loading? Same way I do with everybody else. I talk to them. <coughs> I, I think we hold physicians and surgeons in too high of a regard sometimes. And by that, I mean, we forget that they are humans as well, prone to the same decision-making errors as all of us. They all have their backgrounds and you can't discount having conversations with people to get to know them as a human. It is a lot easier to change the mind of someone you know and like than some stranger walking down the street. But that is still on you to go have conversations with surgeons. I, I'm willing to bet in my phone right now, I have over 30 surgeons numbers saved in there because I've taken the time to get to know them. I've trained some of their kids. Like I, I've been the person they call when they needed to work someone in. And that opens me up to say, hey, the research says I'm okay to start doing this earlier. And there, or if I start doing it because that's what the research says, I'm a lot less likely to get screamed at. Not that that bothers me at all at this point in my career, but you know, if that's what you need to do to get it off your chest, I hope you feel better afterwards. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. Like whether it's a surgeon title or any title of an individual, uh, trying to build a relationship first is ultimately what matters if you want to change beliefs and behaviors. That's what I would try to do. Um, even if that meant like having outside of work conversations, uh, let's go get a, a beer together and sit down and talk. Uh, I think f there's a lot of power in finding common ground first and then addressing the things that we disagree on. But I wouldn't view them as this uh, unapproachable, you know, mythical or title. All right, that's a wrap on episode 170, part one of the Pain and Rehab Seminars question and answer session from Portland, Oregon. Part two will be up next week. A uh, big thanks to Dr. Derek Miles and Michael Ray and also Tom Capitelli for recording this Q&A. Uh, before you go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. For everyone here at Barbell Medicine, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. We'll see you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.